Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 29, with Pastor John King. I challenge you guys next year. Um, one thing that was brought to mind is uh, having the men out there really makes a difference with the kids. So, uh, you know, you guys start planning. You got a year in advance to start planning. Maybe you want to take one day off that week if you're working. And you can volunteer, uh, you know, help pour into these kids because it sure is an honor and a blessing. And, uh, you know, one thing we, we need to do, especially of us who are older, is we need to really focus and, and, and set our minds and set our hearts before the Lord to preserve our Christian faith to, uh, to the next generation. Uh, and it's, it's more intense, you know, now. It's more intense, so it's more, more uh, needed than ever, I think. Um, well, good morning, everybody. We're going to get. Uh, we're going to do the rest of Galatians chapter three. So, if you would please turn with me to Galatians three verses twenty-one through twenty-nine. <clears throat> While you're headed that way, we uh, we're going to just kind of quickly review from last week what we've learned so far. Uh, two primary teachings last week. Paul was really wanting to hammer home the the belief and the truth of the permanence of God's word, the permanence of God's covenant promise to Abraham. You can't come along later and try to change the arrangement that God had made with Abraham. His covenant promise was irrevocable. And then through that, it was thereby extended to all Christians. Even to this day, the promise remains. We also looked at the second purpose of the law, and this is where we're really going to camp out a lot this week. You know, what was, the, what was God's reason for giving the law? If the law has been uh, fulfilled in Jesus, then what was God's reason and purpose for giving the law? And what is it, how does it affect us in our life today as Christians? Uh, so quickly, so far we learned last week, concerning the law, it was actually added to the promise because of transgression. And its purpose was to clearly define sin. Uh, you, you can no longer leave your behavior, your sinful behavior, as just a simple matter of human opinion. God would give it through the nation Israel. He would lay down the law, if you will, about moral righteousness, along with the ceremonial and all the other things. The only, uh, it, was, it was also an expression of, of God's righteous standards in comparison to their sinfulness. So you can see it clearly. There's no mistake when you look at the Ten Commandments, for instance. The law was also given to reveal our need for a Savior until the seed should come. And we talked about that. The seed, Jesus Christ, should come. There was a need to reveal our... There was a, uh, the law was given as a, as a measure to reveal our need for a Savior for a purpose and for a time. Matthew 5.17, you've all heard it. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets, Jesus saying. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so when we look at these two important messages from God, you see kind of a, a stark contrast between the promises that were given to Abraham and the law. The promise God gave to Abraham was direct, it was straight from God to Abraham. It was based on love and faith. It was unconditional. No works of righteousness were required for Abraham on his part. 
He simply needed to believe God's promise. And when he did, God credited him, deposited into his faith account, if you will, with a righteous standing. And God looked at him as though he had never sinned. He had saved him. Now, the law was given under a totally different context. It was strict, it was unbending, and it was very fearful, given on Mount Sinai, you know, amidst all the thunder and lightning and the loud noises and vibration. The only way to stay in a right relationship with God was to obey the law perfectly or to seek atonement through ritual sacrifices. And so when you study through uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you see how that is played out. But now that Jesus has come, trying to keep the law actually becomes a spiritual curse for you and I. So let's read our passage. We're going to pick up back in 21, which we actually left. We're going to kind of overlap from last week. Chapter 3, verse 21 of Galatians, it says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confirmed all under sin. Excuse me. The scripture has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise. We thank you for the, the promise that gives us life. We thank you for the gospel that means we don't have to work our way to salvation. We don't have to climb that Mount Sinai law to get to you. Because you went to the other mountain, Calvary, and you died on the cross for us. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've made a way that only you could make because we were helpless in our sins. Go before us now as we dig deeper into this truth, this great mystery that gives so much life and hope to all who know you and to all who are children of God. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, we started out, when we're looking at uh, verses 21 and 22 now of Galatians, and we see that, you know what? We're confined under sin. You know, there's... You, you can't, because the law was given, you can't hide from it anymore. You can't roll your own. You can't make it up anymore. And when our society tries to do that, it's only disaster. We said it last week, we all know. Ten Commandments have been taken away. Uh, they're still etched into the public buildings in our nation's capital. But by and large, the Ten Commandments are under attack. They're taken out of the schools. They're taken down. The monuments are being removed. And so, 
You know, you think you can hide, but the truth of the matter is you can't. We're confined because God said so. In verse 21, he says, is the law then against the promises of God? He's, he's rhetorically speaking again as though it were true. And then he answers very quickly. He says, of course, negative, <laughs> not. God forbid, not true. It's not against. And here's why. Both God, God gave both the promises and the law. The promise went from Abraham, from God to Abraham. The law went through the angels and Moses to the people. It all came from heaven. So it's divine. And he doesn't put out bad stuff, okay? God doesn't put out rejects. He doesn't put out do-overs. He puts out the best, the truth, and nothing but the truth. Amen? And it says so forth. If there had been a law which could have given life, you know, we would have gone that way. We would have given you that way is what the Lord would say. Truly righteousness would have been by the law. But as we said, verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin to be shut up, to be enclosed. We know that, we said last week, we're confined under sin by nature. We're prisoners to sin by our own nature and by our own personal choice. Our na by our nature in Ephesians 2.3, by personal choice in Romans 3.23. You can write that down. Um, and it's done so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see, God sets the table for us. He makes a way for us to have eternal life through Jesus Christ. But you have to make that decision. Scripture here describes sin as, as sort of an entity that imprisons mankind. When we were discussing justification earlier, you recall that the forgiveness God grants us at salvation is so complete and so thorough, it's as though you and I had kept that law perfectly. And that's amazing in itself because all you have to do is look at the first three commandments and realize you, you're busted. You could not, there is no way. And so because you're justified, it's as though you did. You kept the law. As though just as if I'd never sinned is, is the uh, one way we say it. Just as if I'd never sinned. But just as true as that is for us and as glorious as that is, likewise, a person, a sinner apart from Christ, you've already been tried. You've been found guilty. You've been put in prison and you've been locked up awaiting your sentence. Apart from Christ, you're like dead men walking. Apart from Christ. You have no hope for the future. You have no hope for eternity. In Romans 5.12, Paul actually explains that sin is the reason for human death. You know, if, if anybody wanted to know what, you know, why an answer to things, uh, what about sin? If they try to say, well, there's no such thing, I don't believe in sin, which was ridiculous. Just look at human death. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned. The law that God gave his people confined them. Instead of reducing their sinfulness, it actually highlighted it. 
the instructions given to the nation of Israel in order to live a holy life actually exposed their failure and their helplessness, writes one, one writer. This was how God designed it. He would discourage any self-effort to fulfill the law. Some would refer to this as his mysterious love. Because God doesn't think like us. His ways are not our ways. This spiritual confinement was meant to prepare you and I, the nation Israel, for the coming Messiah, for Jesus. And so God's plan of redemption starts with the fact, you could say, that he desires for you and I to know your sinfulness and to know your need of a Savior. That's, what, that's how he sets the table. And you might think, wow, that's, well, that's just fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is only going to be joyful if you know Jesus. But if you don't, it's going to be, uh, you know, your choices are endless, but they all lead to destruction. Verses 23 and 25. The law was also our jailer and our tutor. The law was our jailer and our tutor. Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. The law is our jailer, not, not as a protector from the outside, but as a prisoner, keeping us from true freedom. Before faith came, this means faith in God, of which Jesus Christ is the author, you'll find in one dictionary, Bible dictionary. New Living Translation would say, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us. For us today, when you talk about your life and you give your testimony, oftentimes we use that little Christianese saying, B.C., right? BC. Oh, that was B.C. How I used to live back then, that was B.C. You need to know that was before Christ. Before faith came into my life. We were kept under guard. Now, we were, didn't even realize it, but we were, especially the nation of Israel, under the control of the Mosaic law that we might not escape from its power. You don't even realize that you're a prisoner of the law, you're kept under its power because of your sinfulness when you haven't come to, know, come to faith. But you're kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. You know, after the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and all the hundreds of years leading up to the nation Israel taking possession of the land, and then eventually the coming of the Messiah up to that point. And so you and I, even today, were kept for faith which would afterward be revealed in a general sense and in a personal sense. In a general sense, we're talking about Christ's first coming. In a personal sense, Christ coming into your world to shine the light. The first coming, he was the light of the world. kept for faith. Therefore, verse 24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Again, this was a general statement and is also a personal statement for you and I. The law was our tutor. You teachers 
pedagogos, you know, pedagogy, pedagogos. The King James Version, if you have it, says, not tutor, but schoolmaster. Paul uses a contemporary example for his hearers, this pedagogos. But it's not the same as a school teacher, if you will. Because a school teacher teaches knowledge and instruction. That's didaskalos, right? But pedagogos was much more strict. A tutor, a guardian, and a guide for the boys. You know, in that day, the girls weren't allowed to get an education. For the boys. One uh, dictionary writing in Blue Letter Bible, you can look it up for yourself. It says, among the Greeks and the Romans, the name was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the better class. Discipline. That was their job. The boys were not allowed so much as to step out of the house without them, these pedagogos, before arriving at the age of manhood. So they would make sure you were where you needed to be on or at the right time in the right place. In the same way, the law was our tutor. It wants to bring us to the right time and the right place to recognizing our need for a savior, to recognize that we're sin sinners. To bring us to Christ. A very strict guardian. For those of us who may have grown up in a strict home, you might relate to times when you tried to hide your secrets or kind of do your own thing. Do what you wanted to do. Try to hide it from your parents. And when you were confronted, you would be tempted maybe to lie or to shift blame. If you have brothers or sisters, that was always the easy button, right? I'm not really lying. It was his fault. But rarely did that seem to work very well, at least in my experience. <laughs> in a similar way, when we hear the command from God, thou shalt not covet, the 10th commandment. For instance, the covetousness within my heart your heart can draw itself to the surface. It can be, you know, it was brought to mind and now it can start to work its way out. It gives us a, a deeper understanding of how, how far we've fallen. That's how the, the law works. You know, this conscience that God has given and the law that he's written on our hearts, it's there already. You're born with it. Tough luck. You can't make it up. Paul talked about this extensively in Romans 7. Romans 7, 7 through 8, he says, well, what, you know, he's, he's frustrated, okay, at this point. He goes, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Of course, certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not have known sin except through the law. For I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, Produce in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. See, law, God had such a divine purpose in bringing the law. As he redeemed his people to bring them to the nation that he had set aside based on the promises to Abraham. He was going to teach them. And he was going to get it to the point where, you know, not only would he be able to dwell with the Israelites in the desert, 
But then he would take them to the promised land. They would become a, a nation. They would bless all nations through the Messiah, through Jesus. And now he can come and dwell within us, our tent. <laughs> so our law, our tutor, was to bring us to Christ. Look at this. That we might be justified by faith. Well, Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorites, he says this. Here is Paul's point. Before faith came, we were held in prison by our jailer, the law. Before faith came, we were held under strict discipline by our custodian, the law. For us to return to these would be like a freed convict rushing back to the prison cell day after day, or a high school graduate asking this, his strict childhood nanny for permission to go to the bathroom. However, the law, as both jailer and pedagogue, did its job to lead us to Christ so we would be justified by faith. It did its job. Verse 25. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now you're talking about not only your identity in Christ, your freedom in Christ. You're no longer under a tutor. This is where we would say, you know, B.C., but now A.D., right? Since Christ came into your life. No more, no further. Praise God. We're no longer under a tutor. One writer put it this way. The law has performed its purpose. The Savior has come and the guardian is no longer needed. It is tragic that the nation of Israel did not recognize, recognize their Messiah when he appeared. God finally had to destroy the temple and scatter the nations so that today it is impossible for a devoted Jew to practice the faith of his fathers. He has no altar, no priesthood, no sacrifice, no temple, and no king. All of these have been fulfilled in Christ so that any man, Jew or Gentile, who trusts Christ becomes children of God, a child of God. The law cannot change promise, the promise. The law is not greater than the promise, but the law is not contrary to the promise. They work together to bring sinners to the Savior. I said we were going to camp out a little bit on this. Won't be too long. I know you packed lightly. You're not, you're not planning on a long trip. But we're going to talk a little bit about how God uses the law for evangelism. God uses the law for evangelism. You know, since we're all imprisoned under sin, the moral law, you know, you want to know, you want to know what good the moral law is, the Ten Commandments, it can still be used to make people aware of their need. How can that happen? Uh, some of us have attended... Uh, the Way of the Master Evangelism class, which we, we did here with Mr. Bill Legg led that. We did a couple of those classes, and we may do another one here in the fall if we have an interest in doing so. And we had this method for meeting people on the street. This is street evangelism with Bible tracts, gospel tracts, seeking to engage in a friendly but not abusive nor fanatical encounter. We had it at the Potato Festival We'll have it at our, our Harvest Festival on, uh, on Halloween night. 
We'll be giving out Bible tracts and, and dressing or doing the trunk or treat. This is how, the reason why they call that course the way of the master, some of you may already be aware of it, is it's similar to how Jesus did evangelism. And it's based on the encounter, and you're going to want to turn there to John 4, verses 7 through 26. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26. I have it up on the screen as well. But this is the way of the master. This is how Jesus used the law to evangelize. We know that, you know, they had just made a journey with the apostles. Uh, he, Jesus was, it says, the text says he was tired and thirsty. His disciples had gone to town for supplies. And there was this woman at the well who had come to fill her water pot. And Jesus asked for a drink. And they had a brief conversation about why a Jew would even ask a Samaritan uh, for anything, let alone a woman. But at this point in verse 4, Jesus transitions to a spiritual question. Jesus answered her and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so here you have... Um, an engagement, two people that don't know each other, two strangers at the mo in the moment. This could be a, a street encounter. This could be somebody you do know, a neighbor. And we might ask the question as we approach somebody, you know, hey, did, did you go to church last Sunday? Or uh, do you have a Christian background? We might offer them a gospel tract. We might ask the same type of question. So what Jesus does is he doesn't come right out and say, you filthy, rotten sinner, you're, you're going to burn in hell. He doesn't start that way. He starts the conversation about, you know, the common thing and a little bit about the fact that, you know, he's thirsty and, you know, a little bit of cultural stuff that was going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, at first, she doesn't understand his implication. She thinks he's referring to the fact that he has no ladle or bucket to draw the water. You see that in verses 11 and 12. I don't need to read it for you. But then here in verse 13, Jesus makes a declaration. He says, he answered to her and he says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now she wants to know more. Verses 15 and 18 of verse 4. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She still hasn't got it. It's still about the physical aspect. But now he has decided, Jesus has decided now to use, to bring conviction to her heart through the law of God. Look at verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband. And come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and one in whom you have is not your husband. And in that you spoke truly. Now what did Jesus just do? He brought up the law. He brought up, you know, the sin of fornication, the sin of adultery. He used the law to reach this unsaved person. And he brought conviction to her heart. 
Now you and I, uh, you know, first of all, we're never going to be as eloquent or omniscient as Jesus. We know that. But we might use what we call the good person test. And that starts with a series of questions. Well, you know, are you a good person? Have you kept the commandments? And a lot of times people will say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not bad. I'm not a bad person, right? <laughs> I'm okay. And then you can start to ask by using the law of God questions like, you know, if I, if I lie, what, what does that make me? Well, that makes you a liar. Have you ever told a lie? Well, of course I've told a lie. And you go through. Have you ever stolen? Have you ever committed adultery in your heart? Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? You can engage and you start to engage in that way. Again, using the law, making use of it for evangelism. So back to our text with John 4. Her conscience is now engaged, but she tries to sidestep with religion. That's a common thing. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, let's get into a theological argument and try to, you know, sidestep everything. But it, the point is that her conscience was now starting to work. There, Jesus was bypassing her intellect with the law to her conscience. Romans 2.15, we know that the, our, the law is written on our hearts because Romans 2.15 uh, Talking about the Gentiles, because the Jews already knew the law, but Paul's talking about the Gentiles. He says, who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. So, you know, again, it's already been um, predetermined in the heart of a person. You can get beyond their, their intellect to their heart by using the law in a way that's gentle, as Jesus was, and truthful, and you know, you're going to be fearful inside because most Christians don't share their faith, okay? We all struggle with it. Very few Christians statistically will tell others about their conversion to Jesus after they've been saved. Unbelievably high percentage of Christians will not share their faith. And that's what God's called. That's the Great Commission. That's what God's called us to do, folks. We all struggle with it. Yes, we get fearful. Now, having gently spoken to her conscience, Jesus gets ready to reveal who he is. And you can see the rest of the passage. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. You remember the promise that Abraham was given. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so if you're having a, a witnessing encounter and you say, okay, you've now convicted that person, understand, you start to get them to think about the law and the commandments, and you can ask the question, if God judges you by the Ten Commandments, would you be guilty or innocent? And most people, when they're being honest, they, they would have to say that they're guilty. And the next question then, in that case, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell? 
And most people would say, if they believe that they're guilty, and if by the standards that you've presented, they would go to hell. And the next question is, is does that concern you? Because here they come to the point whether they're either going to be humble or still be proud. You've been there. If they're humble and concerned that they might be ready, then they might, they might be ready for the gospel. They might be ready to receive the good news of Jesus Christ, if they're ready. But if they're still proud, you might have to either go back to the law or let it go. You know, you only have a limited amount of time with people. Sometimes people are not ready. The law is still doing its work that God designed in their hearts, and they're not ready to receive salvation. Now, why do we say, why do we make such a big deal about this sort of methodology? And the reason is, is because of false conversions. So many people have said, you know, I said a prayer. I came up front to church on a Sunday when I was a kid, and we love our youth ministry, and we want to lead our children to Christ, parents, but we want everyone to understand what you're signing up for and why. You have to have a need to know why you need to give your life to the Lord. And sometimes you're just not ready. One of the best ways to say it is the courtroom analogy. You know, this is about judgment and you breaking the law. So the question would go like this. If you find yourself in a court of law and you've got this massive fine because you've been driving 85 miles an hour and you got, you're on your 10th ticket and the next one you get, you're going to lose your license. And you don't have any money to pay it. And then if somebody comes into the courtroom and pays your fine completely, what does the judge have to do? The judge has to let you go. That's what happened when Jesus went to the cross. Everybody's guilty of sin. Everybody's transgressed the law, whether it was simply in your mind. But the judge will let you go if you accept the fine that was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so that's how we use the law. It's one method where you can use the law to help people. Now, you might say this famous thing. What about the kindness of God that leads to salvation? The kindness of God that leads to repentance. True. Romans 2.4. It says, Oh, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Right, that question, hey, I thought it was the goodness of God that led me to repentance. You know what? That's true. When you have a humble heart and you realize your need. But we latch on to that because we miss the context. It's spoken to a proud and self-righteous person. We often make the mistake of simply saying, you know, Jesus loves you. Or even giving our personal testimony to someone who's not ready because they have yet to recognize, recognize their need. So you've been in that situation where somebody will put up with you to tell you that Jesus loves you and, hey, you want to hear my testimony? Let me tell you how my life has changed. And, you know, if they're not rolling their eyes in the back of their head, they're doing their best to keep a straight face to hear what you're saying. You guys know what I'm talking about. It may be a relative or a friend. And they will lovingly affirm your salvation. So glad you found happiness. So glad that it's, you know, you've got that. You know, I'm so happy for you. But as for me, I'm good. I don't need to hear the gospel. I don't need to have my life changed. My life is actually going pretty good. 
But I'm glad you finally got yours together. <laughs> and so God is kind and good to those who are humble. And so we, we have the saying, law to the proud and grace to the humble. And that's based on James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. John Stott, British writer, said this. We cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. But once we have gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin, guilt, and condemnation, we must not stay there. And that's another message on another day. But that leads us to the next verse. You see, in verse 26, he says, For you are all, for you are all sons of God, or the children of God, members of God's family. When he says it to the Galatians, when he's speaking to that church, this is, again, a good thing. Because he says, for you are... The way Paul words this passage is reassuring because he does affirm their faith in Christ. Despite the fact that they're being fed and swallowing false teaching. It's good to keep in mind that we are all somewhat like the Galatians. Brothers and sisters, we are somewhat like them with regard to our progress as Christians. None of us has it all figured out. We're still a work in progress. Leon Morris wrote this. He said, many of God's children lack a deep understanding of the Christian way. But that does not mean they're not genuine Christians. Being a Christian is being a believer, not having an intellectual answer to all the problems we meet as we live out our Christian lives. You and I have to be very careful that we aren't so, you know, uh, there's a very popular thing now, apologetics, a very popular type of Christian ministry. It's really good. It's, it's wonderful. But it can also become a very big source of pride. Because when you take God and you look at God and you look at all the reasons for God's existence and you compare it to the world's view of God's non-existence, especially atheism, everything tears it to shreds. Whether it's the the, you know, the, the, the stars in the sky or the person you are or the creation, whether you look at it through a telescope or whether you look at it through a microscope, everything tears apart the idea that there is no God. Amen. But that can be a source of pride for somebody who's good at apologetics, which I am not. <laughs> and maybe I don't need all that. <laughs> I am interested in it. But you know, we need to be humble, folks, is the point. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus. Notice it says through faith in Christ Jesus. You have to finish this sentence, by the way. We're not God's children because we try to obey the law or by natural birth if you were Jewish. It says, verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is how we're placed into God's family. When you come to salvation, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit placed within you. Later on in your Christian walk, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people call it another type of baptism, and that's okay. Be filled, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. We teach that here as well. 
The baptism of the Spirit identifies with the believer, the believer with Christ and makes him part of the body of Christ. And then water baptism, which we had earlier this month, or last, was it last month? This month? <laughs> water baptism is last month, is an outward picture of the inner work of the Holy Spirit working in us. And so you're placed into God's family and you have put on Christ. This is where you, you, you change your garments, if you will. When we get to the book of Ephesians, it's going to be a great study. You clothe oneself. Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. But we're to put on robes of his righteousness. Ephesians 4, 20, 24. But have you not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Next in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Very famous verse. Very famous verse that gets taken way out of context depending on your position on these things. <laughs> but why is Paul saying there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus? Why is Paul saying that? Because at the time, historians will tell us that the Pharisee would pray the following prayer every morning. A real religious and self-righteous person. He would say, I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew, not a Gentile, a man, not a woman, and a free man, not a slave. Imagine that kind of a prayer when you get up in the morning. Yet all these distinctions are removed when you put on Christ. All those things that we like to try and draw lines around in our society and our cultures, you know, in this massive upheaval right now about identity and politics and such. All of it ultimately doesn't even matter when it comes to spiritual things. There is neither Jew nor Greek. If Christ saves a person, that person is a Christian. Being a Jew or Greek is irrelevant. And that's what Paul's saying. Because the Judaizers were coming to the Galatians and they were trying to get them to put on the law, not Christ. There is neither slave nor free. Now in Roman culture, they had a very distinct dividing line between slave and free. A very distinct. I mean, you know, you only had like the rich and powerful and the rest of the world were slaves. I mean, that's kind of how it was. You know, there was no real like middle class in that society. And it would have been a very revolutionary thought. Might get you locked up, put in prison. There is neither male nor female. This was hugely radical for the time and still in some parts of the world. We're not going to get into the battle of the sexes today. But that's a whole series of messages. If you want to hear, a, if you want to know more about that, I can give you a great reference for a really in-depth study if you have the time for it because we'll never have the time to cover it thoroughly when we talk about this, you know, the whole situation with male or female. But again, the whole reason for him saying these things is those physical distinctions don't mean anything anymore on a spiritual plane. 
For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. The power of the unity between all walks of life, ethnicity, social status has, become, has come because of Christ. You and I would never gather here on a regular basis based on human effort. The church makes a big, huge mistake trying to draw people in based on human effort. You guys are all here because you want to be here. You love Jesus and you love God's teaching and God's planted you here in this church. That's why you're here. It wasn't some human effort. God adds, God subtracts, God multiplies. And so he finally, in conclusion, he says in verse 29, and if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we don't often think of it that way, but if you're Christ, which you are, it's kind of like saying you are in Christ, he's affirming their faith, then you are Abraham's seed in a spiritual sense. Or physically and spiritually if you happen to be a Jewish person. And your heirs according to the promise. There's no need to go back to try to keep the law because you're already there. The law has been fulfilled. Everything's been made right between you and God in Christ. You don't have to you know, work your way back by putting on the, the curse of the law. So as we close, we get ready to take our communion this morning. I'd like to read a passage for you and I uh, from Paul's letter to Titus. It's Titus 3, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to get ready for our time of communion. And this is Paul writing to Titus, and he's, he's, he's saying to remind them, in other words, reminding the congregation that Titus was leading, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey and to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of our God, our Savior, toward man appeared not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's our life. That's our life in Christ. And so as we get ready to, to celebrate communion together, uh, we're going to have, I think, a, sh a short song. And th that'll be the time to, uh, to come up and take the communion elements and return to your seat. And then we'll all stand and, and take it together. Amen? looking in this is where grace begins we were hungry we were thirsty with nothing left to give oh the shape that we were in and just when all hope seemed lost 
Stand together. Stand together. The familiar story, Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's referring to a passage in um, Isaiah. We don't have that on the screen, but basically the passage reads this way. It says, In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world who are Christians. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There will be, there he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and the people. The Lord has spoken. It's the promise. When he says, I've waited for this and I'm not going to do it, I will no longer eat it until it's fulfilled. And he was referencing that passage. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In the verse 19, he says he took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just as God saw the nation Israel as a liberated people, when they celebrated their Passover meal, when they had that Passover, that's how God saw his people. Jesus now appropriates that to us. The same symbolic significance of a free and redeemed people that you and I are if you're in Christ. 
By receiving the Lord's Supper, Jesus' followers accept that Jesus was the Messiah who suffers and dies on their behalf. He says, do this in remembrance of me. As believers, we are commanded to remember all of his work on the cross and what it accomplishes. Not just the suffering, but what it accomplished in our lives. Let's take the bread. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. In Exodus 24, 8, we read that Moses took the blood from the basins and splattered them over the people, declaring, look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving of these instructions. We talked about the law and what God gave the law. Well, he did, they did a sacrifice and he splattered the blood over the people uh, you know, in, a, in a, a symbolic sense. And he said, look, the Lord, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. The old covenant centered on the law, but the new covenant centers on God's forgiveness. Let's take it. And so, Father, we thank you again that we can celebrate communion. Thank you, Lord, for the remembrance that you have and how you, you put it all together, Lord. You put it all together in ways that your word describes, and we try to repeat that and gain understanding. But, Lord, we know it's true. We know it's true that you have given us a new hope and a future, that you have shed your blood and your body was broken, that we might have life and life eternal. So, Father, we ask simply that you do what you already planned to do, and that is to go before us. It's okay, as children, we can ask. We can ask you silly questions in a sense, because you're already there. But Lord, we love you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to express our love together as a church family. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful table that you've set for us. The hope that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And as uh, Pastor John likes to say, go and grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.